This morning is going to be, um, in one way, it's going to feel quite repetitive um, from last week. I'm going to use pretty much the same points as I used last week, but I have some fresh stuff <laughs> that I feel the Lord has shown me, and in, even in my own reading, but also because, um, as somebody once said about discipleship, there's no formation without repetition. So um, with sometimes hearing something a couple of times helps it uh, embed itself in us. So just really quickly, the two reasons why we think this is an important series for us at the moment is, first of all, um, <clears throat> you'll see on the screen it says, first of all, we want the tabernacle to inspire us around how we can build a home together for God. So we're about to move into a new building. God has blessed us, bought for us, essentially, a new building. Um, it's, it's exciting how that's coming together. And we want to be inspired about how we can build a home where the presence of God comes and dwells and rests. In the tabernacle story, everybody made a contribution to it. And also, there was a real divine order to the tabernacle. And we want our new home to be a place where everybody's making a contribution. We want it to be a place of divine order. And so hopefully studying this will give us a little bit of inspiration. But secondly, which kind of pushes back on this first idea a little bit, the second reason why we want to explore it is because we want to learn what and understand better what the real house of God is on the earth today, which isn't the tabernacle, but is us, temples of God. And so in looking at the tabernacle and exploring this, we want to ensure that we don't abdicate our responsibility as we move into a new building of realizing who the real building of God really is. Does that make sense? So the subtle danger that we have of having this great, exciting new building is we think it's about the building, the bricks and mortar. And it's not, first and foremost, it's about those of us who've now said yes to Jesus and been filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a sense, that's what the tabernacle was actually always supposed to do. It was always uh, pointing towards something else. Um, it was <clears throat> a replica of something else that was to come, a shadow, the Bible says. The writer to Hebrews puts it like this. We looked at this first last week. So this is in the New Testament. Looking back at the Old Testament, the writer of the Hebrews says, there serve as a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Talking about the tabernacle and the things in the tabernacle. is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. So it's a replica of something that's in heaven. This is what the tabernacle is. So that is why Moses was warned when he was talking, when he was asked to, sorry, I can't read today. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern, key word in this, the pattern shown to you on the mountain. And so um, <clears throat> I guess what I want to say is in studying the tabernacle, I said last week I was brought up in the tradition where people were fascinated by the tabernacle, and it is a subject that you could get fascinated by. You could literally, biblically nerd out on this for years. And, uh, and I, could, I could do a, a whole year's preaching sermon because it is quite fascinating. But the problem with that fascination is it can move into a place where people think the tabernacle is a thing in, in itself, the, the end. And it's not. It's always pointing to something else. So there's a, we want to be inspired by this but we don't want to go back to like a shadowy version of something that's become more complete. Does that make sense? Okay. So we want to be inspired by something that was a biblical pattern, but was only a shadow of something more. And um, 
that's what we uh, are going to do over the next uh, number of weeks. And so I've come up with this little phrase all by myself uh, on the next, uh, the next slide. And I hope you appreciate the alliteration that I've um, tried to bring to this to help um, you know, all preachers like alliteration. But the pattern of the tabernacle, what we're going to learn, speaks to the person of Christ and the postures of the Christian life as we live in the presence of God. Okay? We'll maybe keep putting this slide up. So the pattern of the tabernacle speaks to ultimately the person of Christ and then all the furniture that we're going to get into over the next number of weeks. They speak to the postures, therefore, of the Christian life, how we should uh, uh, live in the world and as we approach and live in and from the presence of God. So I want to run over some of the things I talked about last week with some more insight. So I'm going to use the same headings, if you don't mind, um, as I did last week. But uh, before we delve into the different items that are within the tabernacle, I wanted to spend these two weeks to try and help you see the bigger picture of the architecture and the shape of the tabernacle because we need to get some... We can only really understand it fully when we get the bigger biblical story. The big thing that it's part of, the big story of God. And so I want to try and give you some categories to understand that. The first thing that I said we learn about the tabernacle. It seems a very simple thing to say, but the tabernacle teaches it in such a profound way. And it's this, number one, we learn that God wants to dwell with his people. The tabernacle is what we've described as the, the hot spot for the presence of God on the earth. The place where the presence of God was most intense on the earth was going to be in this big large tent that was to be built in the wilderness. Now, hopefully you all know this, right, by now, but God has always desired to dwell with his people. He's always wanted something really personal, really intimate, a relationship with those that he loves. He's always wanted heaven and earth the veil between them to almost be porous so that one world would break into the other world. And that's what the Garden of Eden was. The original design of the Garden of Eden was that man would live in, in the garden, which we're going to learn in a minute. So Eden wasn't a garden. Eden was a land. And there was a garden in the land called Eden. And within the garden of the land called Eden, there was a tree of life in the middle of the garden. And this is where God wanted mankind to live. And then, as the source of all life, God wanted man and woman, humanity, to move the boundaries of that garden and of Eden into all the earth so that he could fill it all with his whole presence. But unbelievably, he didn't just want to do that in one big swoop of his power. He wanted to use creation, man and woman, as co-creators in order to do that. Make sense so far, yeah? But the problem was, uh, um, yeah, and so let me just re-emphasize, re at the center of the garden was this tree of life, which was the source of all God's nature and power and profound intimacy. But as you know, there was another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they weren't supposed to eat of. And as they stretched out for that and did, they sinned and they took authority over their own lives rather than submitting to God's authority. And God had to put them out of Eden. Now, we think that God had to put them out of Eden often just because that was God's punishment. And there's a sense in which that might be right. But it was actually an act of God's mercy. 
because they now knew too much. And therefore, God had to put them out of the tree of, or sorry, out of Eden, out of the garden, because if they ate of the tree of life with sin in their life, they would have died. Because God had told them, if you remember in the story, if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what does it say? You shall surely what? Die. They didn't die. It was an act of God's mercy that they died spiritually, but they didn't die physically. They had morally compromised themselves, and they were outside of the boundaries of Eden. And so humanity's sin meant their access to the presence of God into the garden and into the tree of life was, um, was blocked. And there was a cherubim, remember that? There was a cherubim put at the entrance of the garden to guard them from coming back in. And so I suppose the rest of the biblical story is the question, will anybody ever get back in? Will, every, will anybody ever get back into that place that was designed for humankind? And the biblical story is telling us that through the seed of Abraham, that th there, there would be a way that God would want to restore what was lost. And God, therefore, didn't give up on old creation or sin sullied world, but he couldn't fully reveal his presence the way he once had in Eden. And thus, therefore, God's special, intense, manifest presence in one way was limited. And we see some intense moments of this with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But what we get to in the tabernacle is God in a very specific way saying, I'm going to try and provide a way where this awesome, beautiful, intimate presence of God can still come into the earth and that my people can be trained in how to be holy so that they can engage with that presence and so that my dream to carry that presence to the whole earth can still be fulfilled. Are you tracking with me? We all, yeah? Stay with me because this is really, really good, I think. Right? And so God brings Moses up the mountain in Exodus chapter 25 to tell him that I want to build a tabernacle. And here's the instructions. But before he does that, in Exodus 24, Moses goes up the mountain, Mount Sinai. And um, Karen referred to it this morning already. And what it tells us happens, like, this, is, this is proper intense. Like, this is mad. But amazing, amazing, like, not mad bad, mad good, right? And in Exodus chapter 24, God said this to Moses to go up the mountain. The Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You're to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him, right? So, Moses and 70 elders are going to go up the mountain. Moses alone is only going to be able to go to the top, and the rest of the people have to stay at the base of the mountain. Jumping forward a few verses, it says, Moses, Aaron, and these are his two sons, Moses, Aaron's two sons, and the 70 elders went up Israel, of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. And watch this. They're halfway up the mountain, and it says, Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis, that, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God. I don't know what that looked like, right? But they saw God and literally had breakfast with him. Whatever that looked like, it was 
glorious and beautiful and mad. And the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments I have written for their instruction. And then a few more verses. When Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, this is the guys at the bottom of the mountain, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, and he stayed up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So Exodus 24, they're at the foot of the mountain. This is obviously after God has brought them out of Egypt. The Israelites are gathered at the base of the mountain. God says they all can't come up. Just Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons and the 70 elders, they can come halfway up. They see the throne of God. They get a glimpse of who God is. It's awesome and beautiful and all of that. And then Moses is invited right on up to the very top of the mountain, to which those at the bottom, it looks like a consuming fire. So Moses, in a sense, passes through a wall of fire into the top of the mountain where the glory of the Lord is resting on the mountain and the cloud comes and Moses is right up into the cloud. So in this moment, What God had lost in Eden, one person is getting to experience right up in the glory of God. He's literally, in a sense, in one sense, he's in heaven. And then God says to him, that's the last verse of chapter 24. At the start of Exodus 25, he says, I want you to do a bit of an offering. (laughs) Get the fundraising going. Start an offering, get everybody to bring all the stuff for the tabernacle. And then God says, have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishing exactly like the pattern I will show you. So in other words, Moses has had a glimpse of something of the throne of God. And now God is saying, I want you to make a human replica of that on the earth, because God is saying, I'm going to come down off the mountain and dwell in the midst of my people. The cloud is going to move from the mountain down right into the middle of Israelites' camp because God is a God who wants to dwell amongst his people. So the tabernacle is therefore an ancient symbol of a magnificent truth. God wants to dwell with people. The holy, other, awesome God of all glory. The God of the cloud and the God of fire. He wants to come and dwell amongst his people. The second thing the tabernacle teaches us, just really quickly, is that God wants to dwell at the center of his people. Not unlike the tree of the garden of Eden, sorry, the tree of life in the garden in Eden, which is right at the middle. Right at the middle of the garden was the tree of life because God wants to dwell at the center of his people. And so there's instructions that the tabernacle, I think we've got the picture, the best picture I can find, that the tabernacle was right in the center of the Israelites' camp. All the 12 tribes of Israel camped around him. The third thing we learn is that God wants to train his people to be like him. This is what the tabernacle teaches us. It was a pattern to help the Israelites understand the way, a way of worship in every aspect of life. And that's going to be the subject of the next few weeks as we get into the details of each piece of furniture. 
which I'm going to quickly do an overview of in a moment. But the different furniture in the tabernacle, the altar, the laver, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, the candlestick, all of this stuff was there because it was training sinful people how God wanted to make a way for them to live in his glorious presence. Now, what's really important to hear? Who has ever heard this phrase, God can't dwell among sin? Who's ever heard that phrase? Have you ever heard that phrase, yeah? God can't dwell among sin. It's only really a half-truth. It's only really a half-truth. In one sense, the biblical story tells us the opposite. That God comes to live in the midst of a sinful people. Isn't this what Jesus shows us? That Jesus will leave heaven to come and live in the midst of a sin-destroyed world, touch sinful people. Now, the Bible is clear. God is not sin. God is light, and in him is no darkness. But, so God never compromises his nature. But he does come. I like how Tim Mackey says that God comes and stakes a claim in the midst of sin. He comes to take territory to establish his rescue mission for humanity. God comes into a sinful world, never compromising his character, in order to invite us to participate in his nature. There's something more powerful than sin, as powerful as it is, that has come into the world. You see, the problem, and this is really crucial, I think, for some of us this morning to get, because I think we've got a little bit skewed in our thinking of this. The problem isn't that God can't dwell amidst sin. The problem is that we as a sinful people can't dwell in the midst of a holy, awesome God. That if we just waltzed right into his presence with sin, it would obliterate us. Or the essence of our being. Because, not because he's scary in that fact, because he's other. The Hebrew word was holy, set apart, he's beyond us. He's, he's powerful. It's like walking into a radioactive hot spot of holiness and otherness and sheer light and glory and beauty. This is why Adam and Eve had to leave the garden because they compromised themselves. It was in their best interests at that stage after. So sin changed everything. We have to realize how damaging sin is. Outside of Eden, we can't get back into God's presence, and so God will move into ours. Isn't that just the most amazing thing? Isn't this, this is all foreshadowing Jesus and the gospel. We can't get back into the garden ourselves. We can't get back into God's world, so he will move into ours. He will come, but he has to train us. And so the furniture is, is a training in a way of, Holiness in order for us to know how we participate in the life and nature of a holy God. So let me just walk you through it really quickly. I'm going to go to, I'm going to, go to this one. So this is like a bird's eye view of the tabernacle. And over the next number of weeks, the guys that are teaching will be taking on a different one of these furniture. So the, the children of Israel would have came through these gates. This white kind of wall was like a, a sort of like fabric 
type of tent that right, went right round, and this was called the outer courts. They would have come through here. The people were allowed into this outer court part, all the people. This was a big altar where uh, offerings were made every single day. This was like a big basin called the laver where um, the priest would have washed after the sacrifices. Then they went through into, through, these, um, through this door, of which, funny enough, embroidered into the curtain on this particular part of the tabernacle were cherubim. See the link to Eden? Because now they're entering holy space. Then inside this holy place, which only the priests were allowed to go into, was a table of showbread, was a candlestick, and was an altar of incense. And then there was another veil here, like a big curtain. And only once a year could one man, the high priest, the kind of priest of the priests, go in here once a year to offer sacrifice in front, uh, on behalf sorry, of the people. And this was this particular piece of furniture is what we call the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that Ark of the Covenant was what was called the mercy seat, of which there was cherubim again on the other side. And cherubim are like hybrid kind of creatures, partly heavenly creatures, partly earthly creatures. So it makes sense that they would be around that place because what is the Holy of Holies? It's the place where heaven and earth meet and overlap. So all the symbolism is beautiful because it's pointing to something awesome. And on the one day of the year that the high priest went into this Holy of Holies, it was called the Day of Atonement, sacrifices would be made for the people. Blood from that sacrifice would be sprinkled from the sacrifices out here on the altar of burnt offerings, would be brought in and sprinkled on the mercy seat, and the people would be forgiven before God. So they're being trained in how they approach God. The fourth thing that we mentioned last week that follows on from this is that God wanted us to know that he wanted to move through us. It sh it, the tabernacle speaks to us about how God wants to move through us, I should say. Um, and this is what he wanted the Israelites back then to understand. What I tried to uh, introduce to you last week, which I spent a little bit more time on here now, is that the tabernacle was like a mini form of Eden and creation. It was all a symbolism pointed to like a microcosm of the whole world. So as you read through from chapter 25, as you read through the next 15 chapters or so, which are mostly to do with the tabernacle, you will come to realize that God has given Moses lots of instructions. It gets really detailed. You feel like you're getting bogged down if you're not being taught it maybe properly so you can get an understanding of what's going on. But all the colors, all the structure, all the flowers, all are pointing to creation and are actually reflecting Eden. Over the next number of chapters, there's lots of God speaking to Moses. I just found out that this out this week, and it's brilliant. Can't wait to tell you. Right? Um, it's over the next 15 chapters. There's there's lots about the tabernacle. It's just God speaking. The only thing that breaks up the narrative is God. It says, "And the Lord said to Moses," and then he goes again, another kind of block of speech, and then, "And the Lord said to Moses." How many times do you think it says, "And the Lord said"? How many? Seven. Yeah? What does the seven speak of? Seven speaks of the seven days of creation. So God in building the tabernacle is helping 
the children of Israel know that this is a microcosm of the temple. How many pieces of temple furniture do you think there are? Seven. I'm not going to get into it today, but if you wanted to go into the priestly garments, of which are very detailed as well, how many elements of the priestly garments do you think there is? You guessed it. Yeah? Seven. Yeah? It's all pointing to something that God is teaching his people. In other words, I want to teach my people how to learn, how to steward my presence in the wilderness here so that long term they can get their original dream back in play, which is to fill all the earth with my presence. Eden was not just a garden. Did you get this as well? Eden Eden was not just a garden, it was a land of in which there was a garden of in which there was a tree of life in the middle of. How, how many parts is that? Three. Yeah? Three parts. There's the land of Eden, there's a garden in Eden, and there's a tree of life in the middle of the garden. Then, Exodus 24, there's the mountain. There's the base of the mountain where the people look up and see the glory of God. There's halfway up the mountain, which we just read where 70 elders go. And then there's the top of the mountain where one person gets to go. And then we have the tabernacle we see in three parts. The outer courts, the holy place, and the holy of holies. It's all pointing to creation and all the symbolism is connected because God has said, in the wilderness, I am opening up a portal between heaven and earth again. It's this holy of holy place. And as you learn how to steward my presence, then you can fill the earth again with my glory. Fifthly, God wanted to travel. God, the tabernacle teaches us that God wants to travel with his people. As I said last week, when you go into the details of the furniture, all of them have got little ringlets on them. <laughs> Seems like a tedious detail. But why would there be little ringlets on all the furniture? So the poles can go through the furniture. So that the priests can carry them on their shoulders. Because God wants to move with his people. Because he wants to bring them into a land of promise. And as they learn to steward his presence, he will extend their boundaries and extend their borders. So that they can fill it with the blessing that God spoke to Abram about all those years ago. And then at the end of Exodus chapter 40, after the tabernacle is built, this is what it says. Let's read these awesome verses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar, and he put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Mo Moses finished the work. Now we sung about this. This is what we were singing about. Caroline and the guys led us in this morning. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, wherever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day had lifted. And so the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites in all their travels. It was portable. So Genesis started with God making a home for mankind. Exodus is now finished with man making a home for God. A home that resembled the creation that God loved, that he always wanted to fill with his presence. It seems that if you build according to the pattern, the glory will come. These signs, the signs of God's glory, the 
fire and the cloud, they pointed to God's unlimited goodness, God's love that would not give up on his people despite the mess they'd made of the world. And so the glory, the cloud came and it spoke to the people of the goodness of God. That's why they sung like we sung this morning. You are good, you are good, and your love endures. You are good, you are good, and your love endures. They sung that. They've been singing that for centuries. They've been singing that for days. Makes that we sung the words. A sacrifice was made, and then your fire came. The priests were overwhelmed because your glory came. You are good. You are good. And they couldn't stop singing it because they were being, what was being revealed to them was the goodness and the glory of God who wanted to know them. And the old, old rabbis would have called this manifestation of God's presence the Shekinah glory of God. If anyone's been brought up in Pentecostal circles over the years, you've heard of the Shekinah once or twice, right? But the Shekinah was with the rabbis. It's not actually a biblical word, but it's the it's the word that they used that means to dwell. When this visible manifestation of the presence of God came, they knew God could be everywhere, but there were these moments when God came and they described this as the Shekinah glory of God, the hot spot on earth where heaven and earth overlapped and interlocked. That's the tabernacle. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> no, we're joking. Right, five or ten more minutes, right? to try and help you understand how this is all fulfilled. How did it go? That's the end of Exodus. Well, the, the rest of the story is the rest of the Old Testament. Suffice to say, as we step back and look at how Israel stewarded this, while there was some high points throughout Israel's story, the big, big picture narrative, the big headline of the Old Testament is that the Israelites only did this and achieved this and stewarded this at very limited success. In the end, they actually corrupted the system of the tabernacle itself and became more interested in the rituals of uh, the systems at times more than the presence of God itself, which was always the point. And so it would take God to do something even more radical than build a tabernacle in the wilderness. What could be even more radical than God coming down off a mountain and dwelling amongst his people? The only thing that could be more radical than that is God coming himself. And so God comes himself in the person of his son all these years later. As, as the last Adam, the firstborn of all creation, who will, who will overcome where Adam failed and will overcome where Israel failed in the wilderness in the temptations. And he will come, and as we looked at last week, he will literally come and dwell amongst us. Think John 1, 14. He, and this, the word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling, which is the word tabernacled, amongst us. And it's saying that Jesus in a person has literally come and pitched his tent in the world to reveal the goodness of God, to reveal who God is, to reveal the very substance of God's nature. And this glory was most fully revealed when Jesus hung on a cross, this Shekinah, this, you are good, you are good, that is most revealed in the person of Jesus, in the way he lives his life, and the way he will die, because what we see in the cross is a God who will rather love his enemies than like crucify them. 
he will be the one, the pure, sinless, spotless sacrifice who will take in on himself all the sins of the world and reveal to us the substance of God's very glory to show us that this Shekinah manifest presence of God, the substance right back at the tree of life, looks like self-giving love, looks like a life of laying down your life for God and for His plans and purposes. And so when we look at the tabernacle, as we're going to get into this, each, of, each week over the next few weeks, as the guys teach, they will be teaching us how Jesus embodied all of these particular. He was, the, he was the brazen altar. He was the laver. He is the light of the world. He, he is the table of... They will show us all of that. But they will also show us, as we get to near the end of it, that Jesus fulfilled the whole sacrificial system. The whole tabernacle is fulfilled in Jesus because you know the story, don't you, that when Jesus died... What happened? It tells us this in Matthew chapter 27. At that moment, the curtain of the temple, right? That, it was the tabernacle, then it became the temple. But that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now, it was a big thing. That means it was miraculous. It wasn't torn from the bottom to the top where you could get at it. It was, it was torn from the top to the bottom. It was a supernatural breaking that came through the sacrifice of Jesus. Something more powerful than sin had come into the world. It was sacrificial love, and it was going to change and transform the way the world worked and who we could become in Jesus. And so Jesus' death fulfilled it. Up until that point, the tabernacle provided a way for sin to be covered up, but not necessarily to be taken away. Now Jesus was going to take it away. And so these priests who would have come to the tabernacle every single day and made sacrifices. Now Jesus came as the greatest priest to make one sacrifice. And so here's this really well-known piece of Scripture in Hebrews. Day after day, so you can imagine for hundreds of years this, this happened in the tabernacle. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down. The other priests, I was talking about this with my dad yesterday, and he just reminded me in the way my dad sometimes does. He said, son, you need to remember, all those priests, they had to stand up. But this man, when he had made one sacrifice, he sat down. And he didn't have to get back up again. Because it was one sacrifice for all time, for all sins, completely dealt with and taken away. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Look at this. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. <laughs> so that today, if you have said yes to Jesus, you have access, again, right into the hot spot, <laughs> the place where heaven and earth meet, the Shekinah glory of God. Jesus was the pattern. And because of that, we get to know and experience Him. Now, we are all priests, <laughs> the Bible says, who can all go into this most holy place 
to behold the glory of the Lord. Look at what Paul said to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians. Now we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate or behold the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are drawn in. And what I, what I want us to get as I draw this to conclusion this morning is, in the past, one person once a year got to go into the Holy of Holies. Now through the death of Jesus, the veil has been rent in two because an all-sufficient sacrifice has been made. And now, the presence of God that was in the Holy of Holies is on the loose. <laughs> it's on the loose in the world. It's moving through the world. Because not only did this mean your and I personal salvation, this meant new creation for all the world. <laughs> new creation was happening from this particular point. The presence of God until Jesus was localized in this space, in the Holy of Holies. Even though Jesus fulfilled the tabernacle in his life and showed us the beauty and the fulfillment of all who God is, Jesus himself was limited to one person and one body in one localized space in and around Jerusalem and Galilee. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, the Spirit of God at Pentecost was then poured out on all creation so that what was localized and fixed in one place or one person was now going to be universal because God is going to now fill the whole world with the glory and the beauty of His presence. How? Through a new tabernacle, through a new temple that's being established in the world. And what makes up that tabernacle? Yeah. You're the living stone. You're, you're the tabernacle. I am the tabernacle. We are the building that God wants to reveal by His Spirit, His presence into and through. And so, if you put up, okay, Ephesians chapter 2, as I try to draw this to a close, this is what Paul could say to the people in Ephesus. Consequently, you know are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, the new tabernacle. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building is joined together <laughs> and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Together, together we're being knit together. Just even as, as Heather described, it's, it's more than just like a, a social club. It, it's great that we have that, but we're being knit into something deeper. A, a tabernacle, a family, a building that will extend throughout the earth until one day Jesus comes back and will fully uh, consummate his victory over sin and death and hell and fill the whole of the earth with his presence. That's what Revelation tells us. God will dwell with humanity. God will make his dwelling place 
with humankind. And it's all possible because of what Jesus has done. But what's really, really important to remember as we finish, that new creation project has already started. We are part of it. We are part of this holy temple. And in him, you too are being built to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We get to participate with Jesus to move into the fullness of his glory, the fullness of his nature, the fullness of his presence. And uh, we want as a, as a church, as we prepare for all that God has for us, to realize the beautiful gospel truth that we live in and to continue to be inspired by this ancient pattern that God gives us in Holy Scripture for how we can become the building of God through which his presence can fill the earth.